the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, this is Global Denmark. Today on the Global Denmark podcast, we have the pleasure of presenting a fascinating conversation as co-host Thomas Mullern and Brian Woodward talk to the managing director of the MAD Academy, Melina Shannon DePietro. The MAD Academy is a Copenhagen-based educational institution that trains professionals in more sustainable business practices and effective leadership within the hospitality industry. In this episode, we talk about how Melina helps change the industry by bridging the gap between cooking and leading organizations. We learn more about the importance of connecting with nature, sustainability, the Nordic food model, diversity in learning, as well as Melina's background and much more. So let's dive in. Okay, Melina, what is MAD and how did it come about? MAD is a framing. It was founded by René Redzepi of Restaurant Noma. And it came about because there was a real interest within hospitality, people working in restaurants and canteens in your local coffee shop to try to understand how to contribute to the world in a bigger way. Started as a two-day symposium back in 2011, and we've been growing ever since. Renee is a guy with a lot of big ideas, right? And that sounds like a very big mission. Yeah. To, to contribute to the world in positive ways. What kind of ways? What are we talking about? It's a great question, Brian. He, uh, Renee has a fantastic vision, always wants to be pushing things forward, improving things, and has, I think, a very Danish outlook also. How can I improve? How can we improve the community and the world around us? So positive change does sound really big. Um, we think about it in terms of environment, how can people working in hospitality contribute to the green transition in terms of leadership? What are the things we do as people running restaurants, managing teams that can make our employees' lives better? And how do we as employees and colleagues want to behave? And then financial. How do we create restaurants that are resilient and financially sustainable so they can contribute jobs to their neighborhoods uh, and their communities? Should I understand it in this way that, uh, you know, a traditional education for a chef is different from country to country, I'm sure. Here in Denmark, you go to a trade school, basically, educated as a chef, and maybe you don't get all the education you need to really be a chef in the modern world? Or Yes, I think that's right. So when we look at education for anyone working in hospitality, for chefs, for servers, for sommeliers, we know that there's a craft there. That craft is incredibly important, right? You need to have the, the skills, to, to debone a chicken to do this work, right? But at the same time, if you're going to lead a team, if you're going to contribute to the green transition, if you're going to run a successful P&L or a successful business, you need to have another set of skills. And so we're focused at bridging that gap, the gap between the big changes we need in the world and the craft that's been so long trained in the field. So what is the current status then if you look at the the talent that's entering this industry? Are they being able to more and more bridge that gap? Mm. So we started just two years ago. We started a program we call the Mad Academy, five-day intensive, and it's focused on closing that gap. And when what we did was we spent a lot of talk, time talking to professionals in the field and seeing where the challenges were. 
when do we lose people, right? When do they exit the field? What skills don't they have? Where do we want to set our ambitions? And from that, we developed these two five-day programs, one on leadership and business, the other on environment and sustainability. And it's those two programs that people can now enter. Uh, we're on track. Last year, we graduated about 400 people, and we're on track to have another 400 people who work in hospitality with us this year. And so that's, um, we think there's more to do, but we hope by 2025 to educate about 3,000 leaders in the field. And then we see each of them, you know, it's education. So you work with one person, they go to their home restaurant, to their home canteen, and they change the minds of the people they're working alongside, and hopefully a generation of people after that. Who are these people? Are they Danes? Are they internationals? Is this a thing that you can come to from outside the country to be part of the Mad Academy? It's everyone. So last year, we had about 50 nationalities, even during Corona. A really extraordinary commitment from people to come here and to learn this. And I think that really speaks to the drive and dedication of the hospitality field. Many of them are Danes, both citizens and residents of Denmark. We want we want that to continue. And I think they're one thing that's important to know is people assume because MAD was founded by Rene Redzepi, it's a Michelin star restaurant. He's known as one of the best chefs in the world. People make the wrong assumption that we're working with fancy chefs from fancy places. We're working with some of those Michelin stars, chefs and servers, but plenty of our people are coming from neighborhood restaurants or even major hotel and hospitality chains. So it's really for everyone. So this is a way that I guess you could say you could learn to think like Noma, like Rene, uh, or at least get some education or some insight into what goes on in in their brains. Absolutely. And we want our education to be even better, right? So uh, Noma and the creativity of Noma and the sense of innovation and constant improvement is part and parcel of what we believe in. And then we're constantly upgrading the knowledge. So it's the most relevant knowledge in the field for people working in hospitality. And you know, when I think about the type of change we want to see, Denmark as a whole has really led in the culture of restaurants, right? We have an incredible gastronomic scene here in Copenhagen and more broadly in Denmark. And then it's also led in terms of green transition in restaurants. And it's that type of values chain change that we want to help bring forward in the world. So you mentioned there with the should we call it Mill Academy, Mad Academy? Mad Academy. Okay. So we say it. I mean, you're, we, we, you're, we say, it, we say it like with a hard D as okay. if we're That's easy. foreigners. Yeah. <laughs> and for those of our listeners who don't speak Danish, they should also know that mad in Danish means food. Yep. yep. So it's kind of a little bit of a double entendre over two languages, right? That's exactly yes. right. Right. Yeah. So we get a bit that sense of madness. Uh, we want to be a bit wild. We're madly <laughs> in love with making change and maybe also a tiny bit fed up with the status quo of things not being good enough. Yeah. It's, it's one of those good uh, Danish-English words that has different meanings completely. Yeah. A number of Americans told me they wore their mad sweatshirts to vote back in 2020, and people were really like, you know, it just says mad across. And they, people in line were like, yeah, I'm mad too. Let's vote. <laughs> it, it can mean a lot of things. It, it, right? It's right. not as bad, though, when I hear uh, people that get their dangles saying, yeah, I visited a slut today. Yeah. <laughs> That's the word for castle, by the way. Ah. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's good. But um, so the Mad Academy has, it sounds like, two pillars there in the education, the leadership um, pillar and then the focus on sustainability. Yes. Can you break that down a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So when I think about 
We wanted to start with the fundamentals. We're going to grow that programming in the future. But when I think about the change that's possible with sustainability, if you go to culinary school, these craft schools we were talking about, you don't necessarily learn about food waste. You don't necessarily learn about seasonality. And you don't necessarily learn how to be comfortable in the framework of environment, right? Think about how many conversations you've had. We ask this of our of our students, how many conversations you've had where someone's using the word food system or sustainability or, and you're just like, what are they talking about? Value right? chain. Or, Value chain. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So a piece of it is getting people the knowledge and all of our curriculum is built on these principles, getting people the knowledge, the framework, practical tools and skills that they can take back with them and put to work you know, the Monday after they get back to work, they should be able to put some of their knowledge into action and then inspiration. So that's a real mix of meeting a set of great people um, who are their colleagues in the class and seeing businesses in action that have already put some of this to work. Mm. So that's um, that's sort of the found the foundation of both sets of curriculum and the tools you get can be very simple but very relevant. Um, we really want people to be able to right away upgrade their action back in the, in the class, back in the restaurant. It's really interesting because, you know, my, my daughter, she goes to a preschool or Bernahue and they have what's called Hewa Tomeo mm, yeah. from the garden to the. It's a great stomach. program. Yeah. Um, and I think just, just from an early age, getting the tools to be able to understand where does your food come from and understand the process from the earth to the, the dinner table. And it sounds like that uh, you're, you're intervening later in life and really helping uh, show the entire process. And I, I'm imagining that in terms of the personalities of the type of profiles you're getting, uh, being more in touch with nature must do something to the person too, when you actually get a deeper understanding of the interconnectivity of it all. I tend to think so. And I have um, many thoughts on that. I'll start. One, we have a program specifically directed to nature, and that's called Vilmel. And so that's another part of MAD. And what it does is take the knowledge of chefs, so around flavor, right? Chefs are absolute experts in craft and flavor, and I would also say problem-solving. And then foragers, people who are out in nature, understand which plants are edible and makes them available to the general public. So you can download an app on your phone. It's in English and in Danish, and then go out in nature and figure out what's edible in your landscape in this season. It was made for Denmark, but I actually just recently used it when I was back home in Virginia. Um, So that, I think we get people to fall in love with nature when they're young, and it changes their ability to be environmental stewards and their connectivity to nature over the course of a lifetime. The other piece is, I think we help people connect the dots. It's amazing to think that if a a chef or someone else running a restaurant or setting the menu changes a serving of beef by 50 grams. I was recently in Horsens and actually the menu there was a perfect example. You could get a 250 gram tenderloin or 200 gram tenderloin for dinner. That 50 grams over the course of a year at a restaurant, a small restaurant, that's like taking eight cars off the road um, every year. And so it's still a delicious serving. Tangible effect. Yeah, but real tangible effect, helping people connect these big policy conversations with really specific actions they can take. It seems like a lot of what we're talking about here is is that the role of the chef or the role of the restaurant owner, the role of people in hospitality is getting bigger and changing. At least that seems to be the ambition. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's 8 million people working in hospitality in Europe. And if we could get every one of them pushing for a green transition, imagine how much easier change would be. But will that really affect change? Because, you know, when, we, when we've talked to at least about sustainability and about, you know, carbon emissions and, and these kind of things, so much of that discussion has fallen on to the farmers mm, yep. and it's fallen onto the food processing companies. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the ones who really are the big emitters. How do you see the role of the chef in that whole, let's just call it the value yep. chain, right? Absolutely. Everyone has a role to play. I think often with sustainability, we've wanted one silver bullet, right? If we all have one type of car, everything's going to be okay. But particularly in food where it's really complex, we need everyone playing. And what chefs do is help set culture, right? Um, They also have a huge pulpit to speak from. Um, In some way, chefs are like soccer players, football players. Um, They can help determine what's cool and what's not cool. They help uh, a restaurant cooks one thing and it ends up on your plate. And maybe there's time in between when Noma um, serves ants and when those ants end up in a gin and, you know, or uh, in a paste in your grocery store. But there's a real uh, sort of sharing effect, a ripple effect out. And that ripple effect we've seen with like the new Nordic movement, right? In the beginning, people thought was completely bananas, right? Yeah, absolutely, right? So, um, you know, New Nordic refers to the idea of eating from the local landscape and looking to the environment for food. And now we see restaurants doing that across the globe and, you know, the wrong way to do it. One result could be everyone serves ants and reindeer moss like Restaurant Noma. Mm. And that's, you know, one thing you could do. But what we really want is people looking to nature, looking to the environment, understanding what is right for their ecosystem. The reverse happens also, right? Like we're all eating avocado toasts in Copenhagen. That's not really what we should be eating in Copenhagen, but someone ate it in, in Australia. Someone brought it, you know, to Copenhagen, probably also to the same time at New York, to New York City, and it became part of this cool art scene food. And then eventually trickled out to Joe and the Juice and every other chain, right? It's tasty. But what if we could get a chef thinking about what is it that makes an avocado toast tasty, right? It's the crunchy bread. It's the cream, creaminess and the fattiness of the avocado, a little bit of salt and a little bit of lemon. How can we replicate those flavors right here in Denmark from Danish ingredients? So, right, right. So we don't start eating reindeer moss in Australia. That <laughs> would be the opposite, right? Yes. We, we yeah, don't, we don't absolutely. want that. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Really, really interesting. Um, and I'm thinking that for a guy who grew up in the States like me, mm-hmm. where, you know, I grew up in a, a smaller town and there was no talk about sustainable eating and reindeer moss, I can tell you that. Um, what, what, what does this look like for, you know, the mom and pop uh, that are, you know, sitting around the dinner table and thinking, okay, how, how, what do I do with this info? This is such a good question. We're having that conversation at home too, at the family dinner table, right? Because of course, I'm doing this work professionally and spending my days with people who think nonstop about food, right? Chefs can have eight hour conversations about how to tip a green bean or uh, chop an asparagus. And those are fascinating. But then I get home. And um, recently, I, I shared with the family that the 
uh, Rasmus Prehn, the Minister of Food here in Denmark. And of course, it's it's the ministry who helps support this project and, and makes it available to so many people, has asked for us to all work on creating a vision for food in 2030. So I just said that and said, you know, what are we going to be eating in 2030? And um, the 13 year old in our family said, not bugs. And I thought that was a fascinating answer because one, this is definitely a Danish 13 year old who, who could then explain that someone had come to his classroom and introduced a bug snack. Second, that snack was not delicious and he knew it was not delicious. So I think at every dinner table, for, no matter where we are, the food needs to be delicious. It needs to be relevant to our culture. Um, and change will happen over time, right? We need many, many chances at trying something new and it being delicious. I think in the end, it's going to look much more balanced than it does today. The meat and potatoes we've gotten used to, not something our grandparents or our great-grandparents had in the frequency we have. That's, that's sort of a myth uh, of our time. Yeah. So the thinking is almost kind of like the fashion industry, I would imagine, where the things we see on the runway in New York might hit the shelves at H&M two years later. Yeah. But, you know, it's maybe a color or it's a pattern or it's, you know, something like that. Not exactly everybody's going to go in Chanel clothes, right, two years after. But Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a piece of that. There's, the first time we met, we talked about there's a great scene in the Devil's, Devil Wears Prada movie where they're talking about the color blue and its movement through the fashion industry, right? From Oscar de la Renta um, out to where I buy my clothes, and right? And um, I think that happens in food. And then I think the other piece is we're so often focused in the conversation about food, about what we need to take away. Uh, we need to take away meat. We, we can balance what we're eating. Um, we can eat some less meat, um, and this is going to work better. It's not that we need to be eating no meat. So there's both parts of the conversation. There's an influence piece and then a, a balance piece. And, and that's where, again, if, if people can relate to the, the celebrity chefs as brand ambassadors, it sounds like they have a profound influence in um, influencing a community. I guess it would be the, the these value-based chefs that can speak to these different communities in some way yes. to make it more relatable, that it's not just an elite, um, you know, world capital where you have a lot of money and access to these products that eat these things. But back home, we're, we're, we're going to have a piece of meat and a potato because that's yeah. what we have. Yeah. And I think there's there's something really under important under that. And part of the reason we've chosen for our program to be international at the academy, right? So you get people from Faroe Islands talking with someone from Copenhagen, talking with someone from the middle of Colo the state of Colorado, talking with someone from India and South Korea. And suddenly people are solving problems together that have been solved in different cultures and different social environments in different ways. And there's a there's an acceleration of solutions. Those and are the diversity bonuses yeah. that we've explored on this uh, podcast too. Just when you get that cognitive diversity, looking at it from different perspectives, it, it sounds really amazing that you have that type of diversity. And it's um, it surprises me the different levels it happens on, right? I've heard on the craft side of things, I've heard chefs from Finland explain to Australian chefs how to more easily open king crab legs on the... Uh, social and leadership side of 
of things. I've heard Danes and Swedes explain to Americans and Canadians how the healthcare system works and how family leave works. And then you have these restaurateurs going back to their home country and thinking, okay, how can I build a system that supports my team in the same way a Danish kitchen um, supports their team? So You touched on this a little bit uh, with the um, 50 grams less of beef, but do you mm-hmm. have other examples, other um, results that have come out of this or other concrete things that you try to impart upon the participants in Mad yeah. Academy so that could make a change, right? So though we have 400 graduates, we're only 18 months in. So it's early for uh, big measures of impact. One of my favorite stories is the culinary director of Shake Shack came to one of our conferences. So Shake Shack, major burger chain, started in New York City, probably in a dozen different countries right now, um, but significant. In that conversation, it was this was early. He learned about food waste, um, and it was just you know food waste is sort of a common reported on the news now in magazines when you open. But this was early days, and he realized that at Shake Shack, when they make a burger, they use only one third of a leaf of lettuce because they want that beautiful frilly edge of the lettuce to show up on your burger. And they were actually throwing away into the bin the other two-thirds of every leaf of lettuce they used. And he thought, okay, this is bad for my food costs. Just for aesthetics. Just for aesthetics. Yep. Aesthetics and crunch. You know, I'll give you some flavor and, and too. <laughs> yep. Um, but so, so he realized he was throwing money into the bin. He was paying for that waste to be thrown away. Um, and he realized he had to do something about it. So the first thing he did was just shift it from waste to compost. That was the first step he could make. Then he worked on recipe development. What could he make with the rest of that? And now they have a great fried chicken sandwich with very finely chopped lettuce on top. And that comes from what used to go in the bin. Perfect quality product, saving them money, now part of a new favorite at scale. Yeah, it's a great anecdote. I mean, it really shows the the difference in mentality that you can do when you get together and start really setting a focus on on these small things, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have to believe in it from a value standpoint, and then you have to have the creativity or the innovativeness to be able to execute change. Correct. Yes. So we talk a lot in the program. Our students, and I call them students, but most have a, a... a decade's worth of experience in the field. So they're sort of 28, 30, right, right in that age group. Also importantly enough for us right now in this time in the field, that is the point where you might choose to exit uh, culinary, the culinary field, which we need to keep people in this field right now. You all have seen in the news, there's a crisis in, uh, there's a labor shortage in hospitality in Denmark, in France, in the US, um, it's major. Um, so we need to keep people in this field, but as we, Thomas, to get to what you were saying, we as we teach them some of the sk- skills here, we also teach them the framework for making change. So how do you communicate it? Who do, who do you need with you to make this happen? How do you think about big change versus small change mm-hmm. so that everyone can share in the benefit of a win and keep moving? Again, it's got to be, you know, one of our criteria is it's got to be very practical and very relevant for people working in this industry. I think that's one of the pieces that really separates what MAD does from others. It's a, it is a hard industry. And I mean, you know, I'd like to ask, I mean, does something need to change? Just the business of running a restaurant, of being a chef. I mean, everybody knows that nine to five, that's like what 
nine to nine is more like it, right? Or 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 nine to midnight, or nine to two in the morning. Right. right. It's a it's a yeah. hard business to be in. That's right. And it's there's a and and the reason it's a hard business to be in is because there's so much practical stuff around it. Is it really possible to create that kind of energy? That kind of extra. There are some people like Renee who just are superhuman almost, right? That can that can do both things at once. But is it realistic that we can really get everybody thinking that way? And 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 being able to do it, right? Because yeah. it takes a lot of energy. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy and it is ambitious. Um and I believe in it. I what I see right now is the pandemic has accelerated many essential changes, right? This labor shortage is one piece of it. For a long time and still Restaurants have subsidized, and it's it's wild to think about. But when we go out to restaurants, if that staff is working 80-hour weeks and being paid for 40 hours, which happens all over the globe, then those staffers are subsidizing our dinner. How strange, right? Uh, your plumber doesn't come over and say, oh, I just fixed the sink. It took 12 hours you only need to pay for for six of those hours, right? So we need the business model to work differently in restaurants. The pandemic has accelerated that. The labor crisis is continuing to do that, and we've got to we've got to create better workplaces. And to the point about is there energy to do this? We created the program to be a five day program because we knew people could take five days out. We you know we could have created a six month program. No employer, no team member would come for six months out. But what can we do in five days? How can we follow that up? How can we give them pre-work so there is energy to make change? And then I would say the other piece is as we see people connected to this network, the energy starts to become, it feeds itself. The ambition feeds itself. These people are driven. Is this becoming part of uh, the, you know, when you're looking to attract, obviously there's a labor shortage, so... You take what you can get sometimes, but in terms of employer branding, that this is this is the profile we want. Mm. That you you both align with the value set, and you have the level of curiosity and creativity that needs to succeed here in 2022 and beyond. Yes, I expect so. So when we were doing preliminary conversations, exploring this idea, is it worthwhile? We think we're on to something. Give us your input. In focus groups, it was the heads of large companies or uh, companies performing at a very high standard and such a high standard that their employees rarely move on. Um, It was those two groups where they said, this is going to be the way we keep employees with us in the future. This is going to be the incentive. And already I've heard from people working in the field, running businesses, that our former students are putting this on their resumes. And that surprised me. I didn't know it was happening already, but it seems to be okay, I am committed to making change. I'm committed to ongoing growth and to learning, and I'm committed to collaboration. You've had a lot of people at the Mad Academy to just kind of round off this discussion about what Mad Academy is and what does it take to get in? Is there an mm. application process? Does it cost money? What are, what are kind of the practical details? Yep. There's an application process. Um, that application has been created for the hospitality industry. We, we're not re- asking for 20-page essays or for you to write a PhD. Um, we know the field, and it's made to be relevant to them. So it's a relatively simple application found online um, to the pricing question. So right now we have two ways you can come. You can come on scholarship, and those scholarships have been funded very generously 
in part by the Ministry of Food and Agriculture and Fisheries here in Denmark, and in part by individual patrons who believe in hospitality and see its role in making change. You can also pay tuition. And we ask people to self-identify. If you're working at a larger restaurant group or hospitality chain or simply have the resources to pay tuition, don't take a scholarship away from someone else. But we love that we can provide scholarships to many, many of our students. And if people are interested, where can they find out more? Yeah, they should come to our website. So it's madfeed.co or check us out on Instagram, the madfeed. And we didn't talk. I forgot to talk about our public programs. And I just, because your audience, some of them will work in hospitality. Some of them will know who works in hospitality. But if you're in Copenhagen or living in Copenhagen, um, we are running programs called Mad Mondays. Those are evening salons for the public. We'll do them across Denmark later the, this year. And it's, you know, it's an hour, 90 minute, great conversation about something that's relevant to food. So in the past, that's been immigration. More recently, Connie Heligo came to talk about food and climate change, winemaker. Um, they're a lot of fun. Nice. And it's a really good feeling in the room. So. All right. Let's take a little break. We'll be right back. Studying for an executive MBA at Henley Business School in Denmark is an intense and rewarding experience. If you want to achieve the best possible outcomes in business and in life, Henley can give you the skills and knowledge you need through the Henley MBA. For more information, visit henley.dk. Okay, we're back with our special guest, Melina. Melina, tell me about this world and hospitality. Uh, let's take a little bit of a, a look into the ego world. You know, we know in the broader uh, society right now, there's a lot of talk about um, being more open and vulnerable as leaders, but also as human beings. What, what are you seeing here in terms of maybe barriers and opportunities for for growth and being able to take in this new way of thinking? Sure. It's incredibly important. You know, in conversations with chefs, I've had people who are 39, 40 say to me, well, when I was working in Paris 10 years ago, it wasn't uncommon or 20 years ago, but that could also be 20 months ago. It wasn't uncommon to have a pot thrown at your head. It's easy, I think, if you're outside the kitchen to understand no one does their best work if there's a pot being thrown at their head or if they're being yelled at. That said, I think there's also, because people have been trained in the field, they've been trained in that way of leadership, we have a whole new model we need to develop. So there's sometimes I hear, and I, I really appreciate it when people are honest about this, they say, but if I don't yell, will we get results, right? That's if I, if I stop being so hard, will we get results? And so it opens real conversations about how we create expectations with our teams, how we have accountability, and how we do this in a way that's strong and clear, mm. but kind. Um, and I'm seeing, you know, we began our first conversations around this and also around developing women's leadership in the field back in 2015. So a bit in advance of some of the conversations we've seen today in the public realm. And I'm seeing the field change by leaps and bounds. I mean, people want to be in workplaces where they can do their best work and they understand that comes from support. So, But it's a real dilemma because, you know, the, 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 this leadership style, it's not 
much different than being a, a fireman or being in the military or when something needs to happen, it has to happen now. Yes. And there has to be a chain of command. That is absolutely right. And this whole idea that inclusive leadership and discussions and, you know, value-based leadership and letting people do their own thing, it just doesn't work in every industry, does it? Mm, so I would say there's, there's two pieces to it. When you're in production, and this is in a kitchen or, you know, in service or you're, it's production in a restaurant or in a media Sometimes you have to be super clear. You have to be super fast. You have to be short even. That is really different than being explosive or threatening or abusive. And that's the line we have to help draw more clearly. And we need to separate out for our teams and for ourselves, what moments are the moments that we're all brainstorming or having a conversation around what the next season's menu will look like or how to improve guest service. But then who makes the final decision? How does that dynamic change when we're in service? Yeah, we're not going to sit around and debate when the guest is already sitting at the table what, you know, how to arrange the flowers on the plate. Absolutely. You know, and I think um, it's, it's a great point, Brian, too, that we hear that in times of high stress, you don't ascend to your best self, but you revert back to your, your training, your default mode. Correct. And I think that the more that there could be that Nordic trust-based leadership in peacetime, where it's not, now we got to move, then perhaps that'll allow employees to fall back to the good training and execute. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right. And one of the, in our leadership program, we do teach people about these principles of how we respond in stress, both so they know it and so they know it for their teams. And I think having that knowledge starts to make a difference. And then we just have to practice. We're all human. And and there's a big break to do with how people have been trained. It's getting better and better, though. Yeah. What are your thoughts on gender diversity? How do we get more female star chefs uh, in the kitchen? What are the barriers to that? What needs to be done? Mm, really good one. So, I mean, it is sad that we're missing out on a whole part of the workforce, right? And one of the trends I see is some of the best kitchens, some of the best bars uh, in on the globe right now are being run by women. And some of that is they have chosen to have families and they're going to be the primary caregiver and they've got to fit this in to restaurant life. And so they're making the, their business life fit their personal life. So that's one model I see. The other is how we help, how we help through policy, how we help when there's not, I mean, one of the great benefits of being in Denmark is we have an incredible social support system that pays attention to family leave. Uh, we need that in more countries. And I love that already I see alumni starting conversations, alumni from the academy starting conversations about how people can create it at a restaurant level, even if they can't create it at a public policy level when they leave Denmark. Um, and at the same time, as employers, we have to have conversations with all our staff very early on and say, there's room to have a family here and begin to model that. And it will take some figuring out. And there will be bumps along the road. But I know that in order to keep female talent in the kitchen, we need to be having those conversations before someone comes to you and says, I'm going on maternity leave in three months. 
Okay, so so actually, the work life balance is a major barrier for females going into this industry. I think for everyone so, in this industry, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. One of yeah. um, one of the brief pleasures of Corona has been that when the closing restrictions were in place here in Denmark, right, and restaurants were needed to close at nine or ten that in fact everyone could be home to see their families. Um, once you experience that, it's hard to go back. But I think we're going to see a lot of different restaurant models come out of this. Yeah. So Corona could be good for the restaurant industry in the end. It, it's it been is, hard. It is not easy. I, w- I wouldn't want anyone to need to do it again. I would like us to be back to, not back to normal, but better than the old normal very quickly. But it's creating room to accelerate change, and that's good. And I think people who work in hospitality are oriented towards problem solving and solving problems very quickly. That's given them a lot of ability to pivot during Corona. And what we need is to take this time to create long-term change as well, not just to go back to the same old urgency of doing what's immediately in front of me. A great point. Are are there any, I'm just thinking, are there any industries that have the same type of demand that have been able to create yeah, a better even model. Hist- even mm. historically, you know, I've been thinking about, I mean, you know, if we think about, for instance, the building industry or other industries that are very reliant on craftsmen mm. to actually do the work. Have we seen examples anywhere where those are the ones who are actually kind of driving social change and creating new movements? And, um, you know, I, I don't know if I... So I think the military has done some of this successfully. And I I had a Danish Navy lieutenant laugh at me when he learned that kitchens were just beginning to think about this type of change because the military has seen that it's necessary for quite a while. I used to think that the comparison between between restaurants was restaurants and athletes. These are people who are performing for an audience. There's something at stake and it's a very physically intense role. After watching restaurants, I've come to understand that actually working in a restaurant is more demanding than being an Olympic athlete. Mm -hmm. There's no off season. There's no training. You're on every day and you need to perform at a great level every day. Okay. So this reminds me of kind of then thinking about the Cirque du Soleil model and how they manage their talent. Do you remember that, Brian, Mm -hmm. reading about the Cirque du Soleil? I want to hear about this. Yeah. Well, they, they've had, they're renowned for how they were able to um, work with their, their high-end talent and retain them and attract them. Mm. Um, so I would just say take a look at that. But they, they instituted a whole um, people program okay. and people strategy um, because of what we're talking about and uh, succeeded. It's probably quite similar. Yeah. So, Malia, big ambitions. The Mad Academy is going to try to change the food industry. Yeah. Everyone working in hospitality. Everyone working in hospitality. Everyone working in hospitality. Yeah, let's go even bigger. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a big ambition. So we want to wish you luck with that. But how did you come to this job? Mm. Let's talk a little bit about you. What's your background? Yeah, I came to this job over dinner. So I was apropos. <laughs> exactly. I was in New York. I had had at that point two parts of my career. One working at Yale University, building out their sustainable food program, and so that in a very similar way, was about how do we make change. And there we were working with academics to put curriculum together about food and agriculture. We had a great college farm, and we were working with the dining halls to do the hands-on piece of how do you serve 8,000 students every day in a way that is 
environmentally sustainable. Then I was in New York at the High Line. And again, this was a project I loved because it was about connecting people. It was about connecting them to the environment. And there I worked with them to open a restaurant and to get food concessions onto the High Line. And, you know, it initially started because they believed no one was going to come back to the High Line, which, of course, it's, a, it's one of the U.S.'s most beloved tourist destinations now. And they also thought they were doing this to make money. And I was like, a restaurant is not the way to make a fortune. We can make some profit. And that's one of the things we train our students to do. But at any rate, I was at dinner and uh, someone started talking about the MAD Symposium and said, you need to learn more. Eventually, through, through another dinner, I met Renee and I began consulting from the U.S. and then eventually understood there was this was not about changing one small restaurant in Christianstown. This was about serving a whole field. Mm. So, and yeah. so you came to Denmark when? I came to Denmark August of 2016. And that yeah. was to start MAD Academy. Yeah, well, so at that point, MAD had been a two-day symposium happening every couple of years with a lot of volunteer energy and a lot of energy from the restaurant, like borrowed energy, right, um, from restaurants in Copenhagen. And we didn't know, Renee didn't know where MAD should go next. And so we spent a lot of time that first month walking around Copenhagen, taking bike rides, having conversation about what was needed, and then talking to people in the industry from all over the globe and really crystallized around this idea. It became clear in those conversations that there was a hunger for knowledge, that a two-day symposium wasn't enough to make the scale of change we wanted, and that the needs were in leadership, business, and sustainability. It's fascinating. And do you think that being in Copenhagen, uh, that it's an appropriate place to kind of be an epicenter for this change? Yeah, I think Copenhagen is fascinating from a food perspective. It's very, the, the environment is very collaborative, first of all, and it's somehow very open to experimentation. And I think part of that special sauce is the number of workers we have from outside of Denmark who come join and learn this type of collaboration that's very natural in the Danish education system um, and Danish approach. Um, there yeah. it is right there. I mean, you've literally just identified kind of the global and local convergence, the collaboration, which is a pillar of the Danish culture with the, with the innovative risk-taking from mm. other cultures. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's beautiful to see in action. I was at a restaurant last week that opened, it's called Propaganda. I encourage people to go check it out. It's Korean food. And I can't really imagine five years ago a hip, fun Korean place opening in Copenhagen. Korean propaganda. <laughs> Let me just tell you something. Korea is I'm killing it, man. They're killing it on Netflix. They're killing it in the restaurant business, apparently. I, I right. would think it would be from South Korea, but when it's called propaganda, yeah, well, perhaps yeah. from... The, uh, one of the chefs is, uh, or one of the owners is Italian, but there you go. Yeah, yeah. 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 Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, final question. This uh, session... What's the next new Nordic food? The question on everybody's mind. Can you break some news today for us? <laughs> yeah, this is this is a good one. The next new Nordic food is going to give a lot more attention to labor. It, it's got to, right, given where we are just now. Um, it's not just that we're going to be continue to be known for skewer or 
great butter and and milk, but we're this labor model that Denmark has of taking better care of employees. Plus, we're going to need something more right now in terms of attracting employees. I think the next next model will include that. Less about food, more about the people preparing the food. Yeah. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up the printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life. Melina, what can the world learn from Denmark? This is a fun question because I've had so enjoyed so much learning the last five years from Denmark that I've lived here. So first, I think collaboration. We spoke about it a bit, but when I see what's happening at the kids' schools, when I see workplaces, how government and foundations encourage collaboration, I think it's fantastic that it's it's just a core value of the way we live. Uh, the second would be we count. Our actions count. I think there's a conversation sometimes around climate change that says, uh, what one person does doesn't matter. But in fact, Denmark's pretty small in the scheme of the world's population, six, six and a half million, right? And in fact, we're still making the effort to go further. And we're making the effort to go further because we know our actions will inspire others and make the road easier for others. So I think that we count. And then finally, the incredible social support we have here. It makes it easier for employees and citizens to retrain. It builds a high level of trust. It allows the labor market to be flexible and to move forward, to progress. And that's really positive. And then if we go the other way, Mm. Denmark has a lot to learn from the world, I would imagine as well. What are some of the things that you've seen since you've been here where you think, ah, we could do that better. Mm, that's a good one, too. So I think Danes could brag more. Danes are very modest, right? Uh, I think there's also we could build in more openness, right? There's sometimes a tendency to hold hold back, right? With that, And it comes with that modesty. But there are so many good ideas here we should share with the world. Um and maybe that openness also includes our openness to foreigners in general um, and how we welcome them into society. The people who have done the best job of practicing Danish with me outside the family are uh, immigrant cab drivers. And I think that's mm. because they know. They know the challenge of learning this new language and integrating into They've the society. They've been through it. They've lived it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah, there's the potential brain gain. Yes. Right. We also ask uh, all the guests... Um, I didn't mean to cut you off if you have something else. Yeah, we, but we also ask all, all of our guests who come in, uh, if you have three books that have meant something to you, uh, or perhaps that um, you think people who are interested in, for example, uh, food and learning about food, could be either or, mm. what would those be? I'm an avid reader, and actually one of the programs we have with the Academy is a book club. So when you're welcome to the book club, we send you a two books that our team has handpicked or our, that our faculty have handpicked so that you're learning right away uh, about one of these topics. But I'll share three that are important to me personally. Um, one was Babette's Feast, which of course you can read uh, by Karen Blixen, but then that was created into a film in the 80s and that's when I saw it first. But it speaks just to the magic of food, right? To open our senses, to... Uh, give us joy, and that's quite beautiful. I think it won an Oscar. 
That's right. Yeah. Didn't it, it did. for best foreign film? You are correct. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yep. Okay, I yep. haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's great. Oh, you must see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also the landscape is so Danish. Um, and, it, you know, it's set in the time of the French Revolution, but it's beautiful. Uh, the other is San County Almanac. So that's a book by Aldo Leopold, an American conservationist. And there's a specific chapter in there, The Land Ethic, which I think lays out the best theoretical framework for why it why we should care about nature yeah, that I've that I've read. It's really can, simple. Can you say it one more time? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the Sand County Almanac is the book. Sand County Almanac. Okay. And then the land ethic is a chapter within that book. Okay. Yeah. So and then more recently I've read a book called uh, Stony the Road by Henry Louis Gates Jr. He's a academic, so it's you know it's a bit of a thick book, but for me, it answers a really important question. I think many of us look at the U.S. right now and sort of shake our heads and wonder how the conversation about race got to where it is. We know change is necessary, but how did we get here? And we study the Civil War, right? And we study the Civil Rights Movement, but what happened in the 100 years between? And it's a great explanation of that and how we how some of the structural racism got embedded into it's the U.S. called Jim Crow era. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Really interesting. Melina Shannon DiPietro, the managing director of Mad Academy, has the ambition of changing not only the role of the chef, but the role of everyone working in hospitality uh, from the Mad Academy here in Denmark. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank was, you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you both. Really inspirational.